Hello, disclaimer. Hello, can I order an 18-inch podcast disclaimer for active alcohol consumption, bad language, and getting stuff a bit wrong, then not editing it out later? You want any drink with that? No, we've got plenty of that here, thanks. And it's swearing, yes? The disclaimer's for swearing, that's right. You want to collect or delivery? Uh, delivery, please. Okay, whereabouts are you? It's PeggyMountPod.com. Dot com. Is that the internet? That's right. Delivery to internet take a bit longer. We're very busy today. Uh, okay, how long is that going to be? Be about an hour. Is that okay? Uh, the podcast's only supposed to be 30 to 40 minutes. Would it be quicker if I came in to pick it up? You coming from pegmountpad.com? Yes. It take you half hour to get here, my friend, then you got to get back home. Mm, yeah, that's a point. You want a disclaimer or no? Actually, I might just use this. You what? I'm recording this. I might just use it as the disclaimer. You're talking about? I'm trying to run a business here and you're phoning up a freebie? You can fuck off. Yeah, that'll do. On the Pinging Mount cast tonight. Roland has clearly never used a sweeten brush before. <laughs> He's wearing a lemon and steel grey argyle sweater. <laughs> yes. Which is fine on its own. Hmm. But underneath it, underneath his V-neck sweater, he's got a cream mm. and khaki checked shirts. He looks yep. like someone's put a head on the test card. Don't you just know that that office smells of wood, oil, <laughs> Brute 33 <laughs> and rotten egg? Which goes into a bit more detail. Is that Graham White was the director of an engineering company when he wrote The Gaffer. And there it we go. fucking feels like it's... Exit! Stage left! <laughs> All right, hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to ignore the new CFAX and Teletext facility on our televisions so that we can savour some vintage visuals. Yes, hello to you, and thanks for moseying over for our casual cultural critique of vintage television, where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds, because here, all roads lead to the mountain. If you head over to PeggyMountPod.com, info for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes there. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or ask us why we haven't covered your favourite cartoon yet. And before we burn out the goodwill of everyone around us by continuing to pursue a self-indulgent course of action for which there is no perceivable gain or financial benefit, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? As the lager. I fear no judgement. You? <laughs> I have got an Old Blue by the Chadlington Brewery in Oxfordshire. Nice. Nice. Is is it good? I've tried it. I've literally only just opened it. I'll let you know. Fair, fair. Because this shit's fucking rank. <laughs> anyway, let us swiftly regress to what some describe as the best days of your life. Ah, the heady days of school. Although, I'm not sure that premise should apply to the pupils at this secondary education facility. By now, it's a well-established series and riding the crest of a cultural wave. So when asked if we'd review an episode, we just said yes. Grey 
Grange Hill was a drama series centering around its titular comprehensive school, devised by Phil Redmond and running on Children's BBC from 1978 to 2008 for 31 series and over 600 episodes. The show was presented from the point of view of the pupils and offered a nuanced, humorous and at times downright harrowing take on turn-time lives of its adolescent protagonists as they grew and moved through the years only to be replaced by the new intake. We've watched a key episode from February 1986, the series' second Golden Age, written by Margaret Simpson, in which Julia and Laura fail to read a postcode, Roland fails to maintain a cash flow, but Samo seems to be enjoying himself at least. Loved it, back in the day, loved it. You? Uh, At this era, yes, very much. This was a, this was the go-to soap opera for mm-hmm. our generation at that time. It certainly was. Incidentally, this episode mm-hmm. aired originally on Friday, twenty-first of February, nineteen eighty-six. Ten years later, on Friday the twenty-third of February, nineteen ninety-six. Ten years and two days later, but still on a Friday, mm-hmm. Train Spotting is released. Ooh. Is that a coincidence or homage? I'd like to think it was homage. Anyway, I love this on two levels. Right. Okay. I felt an affinity with the characters. Mm-hmm. But there was also an edge to this show that unnerved me. Right. I hated my secondary school years, and this underlined any fears or misgivings that I had. So watching Grinch Hill was always a bittersweet experience, but addictive nonetheless. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't... Like event television, I don't think I would be in school talking about it the next day, but mm-hmm. I would feel like I'd missed out if I hadn't seen it. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. You know, it was just it was it was there, it was bubbling under, and it is that thing where when you're watching it, the cameras are at like the head height of the kids. It's a mm-hmm. very important but subliminal thing where you just, you know if you are that height and you're watching it, oh, this is this is for me, this right? Yeah, yeah. And I was, uh, at this particular period uh, of the episode that we were watching, I was well into it by this stage, absolutely. And I'd be gutted if, uh, of a Tuesday or a Friday, it wasn't on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so um, thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember back in the day, it was, was controversial, Grinch Hill, and I remember back in the day there'd be certain storylines that would crop up. And if you, I don't know if you're... Cause, for listener, for if you if you don't realise, Blackout and I went to school together, and um, do you remember any teachers focusing on any of the storylines and bringing them into conversation in classes? And do you remember any of that happening? I do. That's why I, I ask. Uh, I don't. Not specifically. It very well may have happened. We shared quite a few classes. Um, we mm. didn't share others, but I. Mm, which teacher are we? They'll remain nameless. Uh, was it the one that everyone called Fingers? <laughs> it was, I didn't get her. Oh, right. In that case, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you mentioned in your prologue, key episode, and yeah, it really is. This is it. Let's not bury the lead. Hmm. We've watched the heroin episode! Yay! There you go. <laughs> the one. I mean, yeah. it doesn't happen until the very end, but, you know, we, we're getting there. It's a long journey. That's fine. I wanted to do... Listener, that episode of Starsky and Hutch where Ken gets addicted to heroin, but Dr. Velvet looked at this and didn't see make peace on the series lineup and he said we get a reputation. So you know Right. You know. <laughs> just just thinking of the brand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um we start this episode 
was something a little bit frustrating. Um, Roland has clearly never used a sweeping brush before. <laughs> He's t- that lad is just shifting the muck from A to B. I still find it more convincing than anything he says, though. God bless him. Right, right. Well, if you can understand it. But he's the just sh- shifting the muck from A to B. Grange Hill, I, I don't want to go too hard too early. Grange Hill has been running for this point by eight years. And it's been quite successful. You would think that they could afford kids who can act. Yep. That said, I also suspect that the series budget probably went on that Atari Star Wars sitting cabinet in Roland's amusement arcade. Yes, yeah. Well, that and his beautiful work overall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that um, work overall uh, cost them the same as the a budget for one episode of Blake 7. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a good job that this episode is six months before Outrun landed in the arcades. Otherwise, the rest of the series would have been made with paper cut ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so how was Roland working in an arcade? See, I, I didn't watch any episodes leading up to this. And do you know what? I recently have, okay. uh, thanks okay. thanks to the, the wonderful folk over there at BritBox. Mm-hmm. By the way, if anybody is listening from BritBox, I've caught up. So get more series on, though. Hmm? I, th- I thought you were about to ask for like a complimentary extension to your subscription, but no, you just want more programmes. Okay. Yeah, you know, a few more episodes of uh, of The Grange Hills. We're only up to whatever season. Right. It's not enough. I've, I've, anyway, so um, I, I can't remember. Well, it's more that Roland... Is working in the arcade. That's mm. what there are two main storylines. Well, in fact, not even men. There are two storylines in this episode. Roland in the arcade, mm-hmm. with Samuel coming in to bother him all the time, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand, you got Julia and Laura wanting to go to a party. Julia's father doesn't like her sloppy sweater. That's a bit rich come from him, isn't it? Because he's dressed like he's just about to be a contestant on Bullseye. He's wearing a lemon and steel grey argyle sweater. <laughs> yes, which is fine on its own. Mm. But underneath it, underneath his V-neck sweater, he's got a cream mm. and khaki checked shirt. He looks yep. like someone's put a head on the test card. Right. Right. Dear God. No need. Um, so, yeah, they're trying to surreptitiously organise this, like, well, just arrange getting to this absolute all-night banger. Neither yeah. of these timelines, neither of these stories takes place in school. It, it's February. It's not the summer holidays. What's going yep. on? I want the- to hear the clack of shoes down the corridor. Yeah. That we are devoid of classrooms here. Oh. Um, it's all what's going on. Um, so, yeah, Julia and Laura, who are mates, um, they're plotting this little devious scheme to attend a party. Yeah, an um, all, that, in quotes, an all-night party. Yeah, an all-night party. Um, they've, they've given their respective parents the excuse that they're going to go and visit Laura's dad. So Laura's mum and dad are divorced. Laura's mum, incidentally... Uh, Mrs. Regan is a teacher at Grange Hill, um, so they're they're divorced, and um, yeah, Laura and Julia are going to go and visit her dad. I mean, you know, her mum's a teacher. Surely mm. that, in its own, means she can spot a bullshitting child at two hundred metres. She's not Poirot. <laughs> I don't think it'd have to be in this case. Where are you going? We're no. going to a party. Was that? Uh, no, did, did my friends from Baron's house in the what? <laughs> Right? No, not an all-night party in North London. Did we play a clip? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Laura's mother, Mrs. Regan, she was always a bit wet for me. I didn't I didn't like her. Bring on yeah. McCluskey every time. Uh, McCluskey, yep. she would have sorted it out. She would have seen through her straight away. Rod of iron. 
Yep. You're going fucking nowhere. Sit down. <laughs> scrub, scrub the sink. <laughs> that would have been her. Go on, uh, Klusk. So yeah, they're trying that left, right, and centre. In the meanwhile, we're back in the arcade, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, Samuel comes in. He, he wants to borrow fifty quid off Roland. Just fifty quid. That's a sizable amount of money for nineteen eighty six. I'll give him that. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that all? My um, God, I would have passed out if my mate had asked me for a fiver. Yeah. So anyway, you know where we are. I expect you to have worked this out in advance, right? In nineteen eighty six. Was fifty pounds the present day equivalent of A one hundred and twenty pounds, B one hundred and fifty pounds, or C one hundred and ninety pounds? Hundred and twenty. Correct. In one for the Bang. first time. For the first time. You gotta bear in mind that Samuel isn't using that to buy fifty quid's worth of skag. You might look at him and think that he is. What he's actually doing here is He's testing out the old urban myth that dealers sell you your first hit for 10 pence to get you hooked. And what he's doing is he's just going back to the same guy again and again in 50 quid's worth of hats and false moustaches. That's, yep. li- that's literally why he's getting the money off Roland in the arcade in 10 piece. Yeah, yeah. He's got a he's got a, an account with a fancy dress shop. It's, 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 it's a lot of effort, but in the end, he ends up with enough gear to start his own dealership. He's pretty switched on for a smackhead, good lad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's more switched on um, than the sound guy because we cut to the start of Laura and Julia's journey on their um, clandestine voyage to this party, mm-hmm. and um, they they stop off in the cafe. Or is it is it the Tyne Tunnel? Because the acoustics <laughs> are disgraceful. The acoustics are disgraceful, echoing all over the gaff. The Grand Canyon has less reverb. Yeah, I've got to say that prop burger. It's uh sitting in front of Laura. That's not soaking up any of the sound, does it? <laughs> wait, wait now, wait now. Hamburger? Who called it a hamburger in the day? You would, If you talk to your mate, you call it a burger? Are you not eating that hamburger? She may as well have said, are you not eating that hamburger with the bun and accompanying lettuce garnish? <laughs> what? They're acting like adults, though. That's like their whole, their whole well, stick here. You know, they, they think that's what the grown-ups do. Well, I suppose um, they've got the Pet Shop Boys playing in the background, playing West End Girls to give right. it that modern edge. Um, yeah. I think that that helps them prove that they really are an independent individual. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just want to say, I know it's the 80s, right? I know it's the 80s because cut to Laura and Julia walking down the street wearing an all-white outfit in the rainy UK. It's asking for trouble, mind. It is, yes, yes. So when that car drove past... And mm-hmm. went through the puddle and splashed Laura. She got everything she deserved. I'm sorry, but she did. We'll come Where back to this. We will come back to this point again later. But yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, this actually mm-hmm. wearing it, any any adult knows that wearing white is just a fucking recipe for trouble. But yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> um, after that, Julie and Laura they're going to get changed in the toilets of a pub which has no lights on outside. None. I'm not going to lie. I've got a very fucking bad feeling about this. <laughs> I first thought they were going to a lock-up, uh, like a lock-in. Uh-huh. We, we've been sweet. in a few pubs like that, Blackout, and it never ends well, does it? So, you know... It was more surprising this. when they went in there and there were actually people in there rather than just, like, severed animal heads all over the walls. <laughs> well, well, yes, or Arthur Daly in there uh, trying to sell dodgy knockoff T-shirts to a woman in a black veil. Speaking of, Yeah, I was wondering about that. How many T-shirts would you get off that market for 50 quid? Mm. I think someone needs to do that. 
I think he does, actually, yeah. It's an interesting point. Interesting point. Um, we cut back to Roland again, because um, uh-huh. we're just chip-chopping through between. Can you understand Roland, though, really? Because I'm having bother here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. him. <laughs> Bless him. And it, uh, well, I always had trouble understanding. Like I say, I've re-watched a lot of these episodes. My goodness me. He was, for better or worse, he was always the comic relief, even in a serious yeah. scene. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, you've got to feel bad for him in that regard. But there we go. You know, he had his moment to shine. Um, and he sounded like a dog where someone stood in its tail. Yes. Mind I tell you what, we don't have to worry mm. about the lack of acneability from the young cast here, because mm. Des, with the quiff at Roland's amusement arcade, he's got enough for all of them! Hasn't he, though? The man is one step away from going full widow twanky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm saying that. The two gentlemen who um, accost Laura and Julia in the public house, yes. they're the coolest Joes on the block, aren't they? Not. <laughs> I did look I did look them up. Um, uh-huh. I won't give their names here. One of them uh, has had a reasonable acting career before and after. One of them was like a uncredited, but he was a guard in Octopussy. <laughs> Three years earlier, that's not bad. You know, to be doing like a James Bond film and then to be doing Grinch Hill, uh, up and down ever since. You know, the other one did Grinch Hill and one other thing. There we go. Right. Yeah, so yeah. you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think being uh, at this school. Well, they're not at school; they're in the pub. They're clearly adults. So yeah, Laura and Julia, they get changed in the pub. They they leave, but of course, they've attracted the attention of these young men, and they're being bothered by them. They are. Yep. Another bit of gritty social realism here. So Laura and Julia, um, they, they create this little scenario to get them out of this predicament with the two boys who are showing them attention, and they jump on um, they jump on the number two six six bus service. They do uh, to N two in Londinium. I'm glad you've got that written down because mm. I have as well. Right, I had a no. feeling you might. Yeah. <laughs> um. Obviously, as we said, in its heyday, which is now, incidentally, like now, mm-hmm. 1986, mm-hmm. Grinch Hill was both lauded and condemned for its gritty realism. Yes. And, you know, never more so than in this fucking episode. Absolutely. So, yeah, Laura and Julia, they, they get on the 266 bus to get away from a pair of lecherous young men in the pub where they've gone to smarten themselves up. That's fine. Um, mm-hmm. The 266 runs from Acton in West London to Brent Cross in North West London. It does. Now, I looked it up, as did you. Mm. That fits That fits Grange Hill being set in North London. I, I really love that yes. level of attention yes. to detail. Because let's be fair, the vast majority of viewers aren't really going to clock that. They're going to see Red London bust. Yeah, 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 we know it's down south. Yeah, that's fine. Bang. Well, and but certainly mind, those who live in the area are going to look at that and go... The 266, mate. I've been on that. Well, this is the thing, because um, Laura and Julia and the two men, they just stepped out of the Green Dragon at Boreham Wood, which is, yeah. uh, if I if I check my uh, my notes here, not on the fucking 266 bus route. It's fucking nowhere near. Seven miles north of Brent Cross. What the fuck, Redmond? Did they not teach you geography at school? Fuck's sake. You would be writing in, wouldn't you, in 1986? I'll be asking and the if driver you lived, if he got if... lost. Well, yeah. <laughs> Mind you, I will say this, when they finally do get to their destination... Yes. I bet they wish they had got lost. It, no, I... Well, they'll be on their own there, because I think this is amazing. They, they finally get to their party, don't they? 
They oh, they really do. And my God, do you know what? I I was going to use that phrase again. This is this is a snapshot of an era, but it really isn't. <laughs> Listener, click on the um, click on the show notes. Click on the link. It uh, hopefully it'll still be there for you to watch. Julia and Laura, at around about the halfway point of this episode, they seem to have found every party that I have ever hosted. It's just four lads. Four lads neck and cider out of two litre bottles and headbanging to status quo. It is fantastic! Hang on, hang on. I'll stop you there. Right. Because when they first walk in, there's some breakdancing going on. Yeah, yeah, I can't breakdance either. This is this no. is exactly like one of my parties. <laughs> no, no, the, the, no. This breakdancing, it was a breakdance. Oh, someone had, had put a pen in his neck. I think, I think um, that's a lad that's just falling down the stairs. Right. Um... <laughs> And you're saying headbanging to status quo. No, they don't. Uh, That's a full-on mosh pit. That's a full-on <laughs> mosh pit. Yeah, the uh, the woodpecker's kicking in by that point. Fair play to them. Go this? on, lads. My God almighty. It's it's appalling. And I do remember watching that back in the day. That scene's really stuck in my mind anyway. Yeah. So they've had enough. They, they, leave, the, uh, they leave the party. They sneak out. Um... And do they basically just decide to go home then, and then yes. get caught sneaking into the house? Which is a bit shit. You're like, you've already demonstrated you can get into pubs and no one bats an eye. Uh-huh. Just, I mean, yeah, all right, they're teenagers. They probably haven't got a shitload of money. But you're like, you literally just stay out until closing time. You know. Well, they, they deliberate over it. They're kind of like, well, what do we do now? Well, but they've got really nowhere to go. Um, they're probably not going to get served anywhere. But yeah, you would just stay out to let. But then again, apart two from females- every pub between Brent Cross and uh, Boreham Wood. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I do like how we're spending far more time on this than what's supposed to be the main plot thread. About It happens at the end, so we're justified. Yeah, but like, Samo does just keep turning up and then not being there. And we do keep cutting back to Roland an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Because, um, he, you know, he's giving him the 50 quid. He says, yeah, yeah I'll mm-hmm. give you back later. Definitely later tonight I will come back. A couple of his, a couple of Samo's dodgy mates come in, saying that, oh, the, the bike he wanted to buy has been moved. So everyone is in on this, like, fucking ruse about buying a bike. That must be mm-hmm. some sort of, like, actual official slang they've got going on. That's fine. Zamo comes in and he said, do you mind if I just go in the back room? And I can't remember what excuse he uses. He needs to do something. I think he needs to go to the toilet. Well, that crossed my mind. Anyway, off he goes into the back and he's there for some time and then a little bit of time passes. We, we 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 cut back to Laura and Julia, who, yeah, there's hell on because Julia's dad discovers they were lying, blah, blah, blah. He, yeah, he's a nasty what? man. Yeah, no, he's fuck a nasty it, you're man. right. Back onto this storyline. The whole fucking social commentary bit about lying to your parents and going to all mm. night parties feels more heavy-handed than the story about the smack somehow. Yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's certainly given more screen time, which I think is mm-hmm. reflected in our podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but he, it, oh, Julia's dad, no, he needs a clip. Uh-huh. Um, not that I can do on violence, listener. But so we get that out of the way and, and oh, it's going to be all right. Julia threatens never to go home again, blah, blah. We know how that's going to work out. Uh-huh. Anyway, cut back to Roland and they're going to close up the amusement arcade for the night. Yep. Um, let's just check that everything's locked. Oh, I think Samuel's still in the back. Yeah, Is that's he? right. Oh, yep. Oh, so let's go and have a look. So they go in and have a look, and they open the door. Boom. He's lying there. He's propped up yeah. against the wall. Uh-huh. His, his head, six inches from the toilet roll. 
right? He's and he's got a what, what, what's that in his hand? Was that like a, a heroin tube? A heroin tube or whatever they use. I, think I don't it's even sort know. Like a like a sherbet dip dab, but with yeah. heroin. That's yeah. <laughs> that's what has been going on there. And yeah, that's like your big shock ending. And you just get these like increasing close ups of Samuel's mm-hmm. smacked out face. With a while, rattlesnake. Well someone plays a clacker in the tunnel. It's fucking yeah. priceless. It is. <laughs> Although they still they they don't want to maintain that for like the full ninety seconds of the credits, so they still cut out to the Chicken Man tune and a slideshow from the episode, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, because they, they don't want to go too heavy on this. Yeah, uh, even though they've gone heavier than anything has, that has ever gone before. <laughs> Children of the Stones wasn't this scary. The yeah, love of God. I mean, yeah. Listen, kids, heroin—it's not good. Just say no. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I mean, you know, this is not news. Everyone knows about the "Just Say No" record, the single. Uh-huh. Um, for those that don't. Here's five seconds of it. Everybody knows that, blah, blah, blah. Did you yeah, know there yeah. was an album, Blackout? <laughs> no. There Please tell album. me it's just 12 remixes. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> One of the tracks is called School Love. I'm not oh, even going there. God, he's reaching for it. He's going to play a bit. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. Uh, there's set, there are eight tracks on this album. One of them is obviously Just Say No. Um, one that stood out particularly for me features two popular characters of the time, mm. Gonch Gardner and Ziggy Greaves. Yeah. Here you go. Yeah, here you go. Ken, press play. Where have you been, Gardner? Sit still, Greaves. Are you paying attention? Right, you do detention. Yes, sir. No, sir. Let go. Yes, sir. You know the well, if I wasn't on heroin before, I'm certainly considering it now. Do you know what I mean? Good Lord. It doesn't get any better. It, it actually does get worse than that. Uh, I've listened to the whole thing through, and my God. Listen, just do it for the crack, though. It, it's on the onlines. Yeah, it's on the onlines. You can you can listen to it, but there you go. Ken, put that away safely. I want that back in the plastic sleeve. Thank you. Closing words on this episode. Once we cut back to the um, sort of the slideshow of, like, you know, the greatest hits comedy moments... While Samo is lying bleeding out of his nose, um, mm-hmm. I do like how the final shot we cut to video, and it's a different angle of Laura getting yes. splashed by the car going through the puddle yes. on, on Borehamwood High Street. Mm-hmm. This time we can see that the water barely fucking touched her, which is why they couldn't use that shot to begin with. There we go. There we have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lies. Yeah. This program is lies. All right. Well, let me ask you this then. Mm-hmm. Had you have been driving past Laura? If you'd reached out of the car window... I don't like where this is going. Go on. <laughs> it does sound rather sinister, doesn't it? But it yes. isn't. How many pegs would you throw at her on your way past? Right, that's better. Um, well, the only reason Grange Hill should ever have been controversial, really, would be equity kicking off about the BBC's use of non-union casting because they're clearly not using fucking actors. Grange Hill as a concept gets eight out of nine. This episode gets four. How about your good self? Well, for a children's drama, um, it's groundbreaking and it's not afraid to address some very considerably dark content. Um, Grinch Hill achieved what it set out to do. It got everyone talking about some very serious issues. That's the silver lining. Now for the cloud. As is often the case, children's drama can be written by people who never were nor have ever heard of children. Some scenes in this episode were cringeworthy to the point 
of causing a self-inducing stroke. <laughs> the, the 80s were cool, but someone needed to tell the production staff. <laughs> For this particular episode's place in iconic television, 7 out of 9. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I don't think it's that good, but yeah, fair, fair. Yeah, 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 okay. But the question on every smackhead's lips is how many bags of skag will it take you to float up the mountain, Blackout? I will just say no twice. This particular instalment of The Hill stars Lucinda Curtis, who also appeared in a 2002 episode of Casualty with... No! Ian Bleasdale, who was in the same role as Josh Griffiths over a decade earlier when A&E opened its doors and its arms to... No! No! Peggy Mount. <laughs> the Count of Monte Cristo for all I see of the outside world. Beautifully, beautifully done. Wonderful. I love it. <sighs> and as, as, as for yourself, mm-hmm. if a young pasty lad covered in scabs wearing a leather blues on jacket was to sidle into your amusement arcade and ask mm-hmm. you for 10 peas, yeah. how many would you throw at him up the mountain? Well, I can do it in two. This edition of Grange Hill stars Lee McDonald as the heroin equivalent of Cookie Monster, and he later appeared in an episode of Birds of a Feather next to Linda Robson, who was privileged, nay blessed, to be in the presence of Julian Clary along with... As a matter of interest, what did you do about it? Lovely job. Lovely job. Right, as I gaze up at the studio wall and I look at our Mr Noisy clock, I can see that it's competition time. Remember, just write your answers down on notepaper, a slaghouse wall, or you can download the official Peggy Mount Calamity Hour answer sheet from PeggyMountPod.com. We're not saying that you will stand more chance of winning if you write it on the official answer sheet. But probability would probably nudge you in that direction. Just, you know, just, you know, yeah. Do that. A little hint there. Yeah, a little yeah. hint there. Yeah. Peggyrampod.com. Yeah. So save your answers, remember, till the end of the series, and we'll tell you what to do with them at the end. Here is your question A lot of the drama in this episode takes place in a games arcade. The music from which popular electronic game? can be heard as popular so-called character Roland is working. Is it 1. Gauntlet 2. Outrun 3. Space Harrier And that's your question. And remember, Blackout, remember, you can't enter. You can't enter. So I wasn't paying that much attention. I don't know. I have no intention of re-watching the episode to find out. While you're pretending to not re-watch the episode, let's watch the things. Swing Ball from Dunlop, a great ball game that's swinging everywhere. Play it to win, play it for fun, for any time, for anyone. Everyone, Swing Ball. 
KTEL introduces the exciting multi-exerciser to help you firm, shape and trim your figure. Ideally suited for both men and women, use multi-exerciser for a few minutes morning and evening. Just attach to a door handle and place your hands and feet in the loops. For improving posture, body shape or just keeping in good physical condition, KTEL multi-exerciser is a must. KTEL multi-exerciser with instruction booklet and instruction record. Only $2.99 at most good department stores, sports shops and other good stores. Can you find a car that cleans itself? Never in a month of Sundays. Will Dad ever fix that sloping shelf? Never in a month of Sundays. Will Joey ever learn to speak? Will Susie finish by next week? And when it comes to gravy, what could beat? It's still in a month of Sundays. Cause Bisco Brown season thickens all in one. Without his Sunday lunch just isn't done. You'll never put the R in gravy without Bisco. The beautiful things, the beautiful things. Lovely, lovely things. How many of them are you going to buy? As many as I can afford. It's off again. That was going to be unplugged. That was going to be unplugged. It's fine. Just let it go. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, let it. Just. Yeah. I'm taking your advice now. I am. Hello? Hello? Hello, I'm calling from usual, that's all. Have you changed your number? It's a 19-inch ham and pineapple, two garlic breads, three battered saveloys, a bag of fried giblets, and a two-litre bottle of dripping. Make sure you get the pizza right this time. You sent us liver and mackerel last night. It's ham and pineapple I want. You know, a pig and a piece of fruit. Actually, better make it two pizzas. I've got ten coming around in a bit. Do us a bag of pickled eggs and all. Any time before it's fine. You know where I am. Again, I'm going to take direction right from you and I'm going to say that's a wrong number and it's now to do with me, mind. I certainly hope that's the case. Anyway, right, on to our next slice of vintage TV pie tonight, which begs the question, can a sitcom set amidst the oily world of engineering in the early 80s with plots revolving around strikes and trade unions actually be funny? Can it? I'm saying nout. He's the gaffer. You can try it up with him. He's the gaffer. Even when he's on a limb. He's the gaffer. When his back's against the wall. Has the answer to it all. He's the gaffer. The gaffer was an ITV sitcom from Yorkshire Television which began in 1981. <laughs> Ran for 20 episodes over three series. Written by businessman Graham White, our eponymous character is Fred Moffat, played by Bill Maynard, the hard-nosed owner of a small independent engineering firm in the north of England. In addition to keeping his business running efficiently in an age of competitive manufacturing, Moffat also has to juggle the demands of unenthusiastic staff, local bureaucracy and his own inherent opinionation. We've watched the very first episode, All in a Day Strike, originally broadcast on Friday the 9th of January 1981 at 8.30 in the evening. With a rival company threatening to steal not only his customers but also his workforce, Fred Moffat then has to contend with the threat of strike action from his shop steward. And when the gaffer realises he can make all of this work for himself, naturally, he agrees. He's the gaffer. He's the gaffer. He's the gaffer. He's the gaffer. I have vague memories of this. I have, I have really strong memories of the theme tune. Right, okay. I remember his hat. 
I don't remember the theme tune, but I do remember the opening titles. The bit where he okay. pulls the yeah, he pulls the parking ticket off his windscreen. That's right. Throws it in the back of the car. Yeah, it lands on about fifty of the parking tickets. Boom! In comes the laugh track. I remember that. That's right. That's right. Uh, that 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 sticks in my mind absolutely. Yeah. And his car and his absolute nonchalant attitude, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. dismissive attitude, actually. Um, so was this on in your house when you were younger? Uh huh. I mean, clearly uh, it was enough flight you to have clocked it. But was it like what every week, or was this something that was on once or it, twice, and then everyone kind of mutually decided this never needs to be shown again? No, it 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 was on because I do believe. There wasn't much else on on the other side. This right. was the alternative. And okay. I think that's okay. why it was watched. I seem to remember that. Mm-hmm. Because that it was Friday night. Yeah. And it was uh, ITV had a decent lineup on a Friday night back in those days. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, this doesn't feel like a Friday night sitcom. No, not at all. It's very Wednesday night, this. Yeah. So as it goes, our opening titles are him, parking tickets, car, boom, drives off. Yep. Um, yep. The sequence is the same every single week up to the point mm-hmm. where he drives under the arch for Moffat Engineering. Yep. Then he pulls up and he speaks to one of his employees called Ginger. There's a very swift two-hander. You get a freeze frame of him, so, you know, name credit over the top, then boom, yeah, yeah. you're into the episode. So that, that little exchange that they have, that's different every week, but everything before that is the same. Now, mm. at the start of this, where he goes to his car mm-hmm. and he looks in the parking ticket... That's not the same place where he drives off from 14 seconds later. What the fuck? He's in a city centre where he's got the parking ticket, which is, you know, mm-hmm. why? Because he's like on a very busy inner city road on a yeah, double yeah. yellow. Chucks the ticket, adjusts his hat, drives up. When he drives off and you get that exterior shot of the car, he's on a hill, just in like a suburban area. The gaffer is a time lord. Maybe, maybe. He's not a comedian. All I'm saying is there's a mistake in this at the start of every fucking episode. Before yeah, nice. anyone has said a word. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> Most of the action in the first part of this episode takes place in the gaffer's office. Mm-hmm. Don't you just know that that office smells of wood, oil, <laughs> Brute 33, <laughs> and rotten egg? Don't. I, I could... You know what? This was on in my house. Mm-hmm. I, you know, to the point where I remember those titles. I clearly... Mm-hmm was in the room and didn't immediately leave the room, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I could never warm to this because the whole thing just felt grotty and run down. It was grotty and run down in a sort of rising damp sort of way. Oh, no, um, I was the same I was the same with rising damp yeah. as well. Yeah, there's something very sort of brown. Everything looks like it's built out of unfinished wood and damp cardboard. Um, mm-hmm. But with rising damp... It was I, funny. I, I do genuinely think the characters are more likable, even though, again, there was I always, to this day, feel on edge watching Rising Damp. It's closer to an active dislike watching the gaffer. You know what, though? I do remember liking this back in the day. Right, OK. And I, I can't have, because I would have been... 1981, I would have been eight years old. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what was going on. And yeah, no, exactly. It's not, a, it's not remotely... Aimed at kids. I did, however, feel like I knew that office very well. Because right. the first scene is set there for so fucking long, I felt like I worked there. <laughs> Again, the money's worth out of the set, that's fine. You know. I felt like I worked there. And it's it's a long scene, and it's a very expositional scene, as you might expect for episode one. It is, yeah. If, yeah, if, yeah. if only Bill Maynard would stop fucking mumbling. 
seriously, is this a rehearsal tape? Right. It's not only the mumbling. It's he, the fluffing he does of that, lines. He does, you know, exactly, my notes exactly. He does this thing of like fluffing and then repeating his lines halfway through. He's walking around looking at the floor. Most of these gags have not been written for his characterization of the role. No. And he's refusing to commit to any of it. I mean, the script's not fantastic, um, but if it was delivered with a bit of energy, it wouldn't feel half as bad. <laughs> yeah. Do you think he's at the end of his contract that's left over from the cancellation of, oh, no, it's Selwyn Froggett, and he's just reluctantly turned up to do this because he's no had idea, to? no because this went on for three series. There's like 30 episodes of this. This is how he's opened. There's a bit on the yeah. on the show's Wikipedia page about how the creator, Graham White, he fell out with Maynard during the third series because Maynard was changing the scripts too much. And right. watching watching this performance here, I'm amazed it took that long because he's not fucking reading from one. Right, right. And yeah, bless poor old Pat Ashton as the secretary. Mm-hmm. She's having to carry that entire opening scene. Yeah, and she is. Her fury at the state of affairs is barely contained. It'd be funny if it wasn't so painful to watch. <laughs> well, absolutely. absolutely. She does it with great aplomb. Yeah. And you know... It does help with a sitcom to get invested in the thing mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you actually like the titular character. Yes. He's one of the most unlikable people. You know, you, you haven't got a shred of empathy for the man or sympathy. No. This is not a good start at all. I do think that, hand on heart, Maynard is not right for this role. No, um, not at all. He's got that sort of wily, grasping small business owner down okay. Mm-hmm. But I do think the part needs someone a bit more like Cleese in Faulty Towers, someone who mistakenly thinks he's better than he is, so that, you know, mm-hmm. he's while Basil Faulty is a pain in the arse, he's also this underdog that you can sort of start to empathise with, even when he's being at his worst. As it stands, the gaffer is nowhere near likeable enough to lead this series. But there's, not at all. there's no one else in here to really warm to either. We meet uh, Harry... Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. soon after, who is, uh, how can we put it, uh, uh, the stereotypical militant shop steward. Played by the ever-taciturn Russell Hunter. Yes. It, to be fair, again, he's playing the role as it's written. He's, he he's, is. He's doing all right here, I'll give him that. It's pretty much the role he plays all of the time, but that's fine. Yes, yes, he over-enunciates as well. This is the um, the second of the indoor sets, which is yes. basically the corridor outside the office. I get the That's impression right. that it's literally built as the corridor outside the office. It's just a bit of a partition wall, and you know. Oh, agreed. Yeah. Now, by this point, we're about ten minutes in. Yeah, yeah. And it registers with me that this this whole setup, this is all about the internal politics of an engineering company. I am not interested at all. I cannot relates to this in any way, shape or form. I'm sure there were people who could. Yeah. Similarly, yeah, I'm sure that this worked a lot better in 1981. Yeah. Because at that point, the 78, 79 strikes were very recent memory. But Absolutely. it's sort of long enough back to be gently poking fun at now that it's the 1980s and things are meant to be getting better. So, you know, um, watching it now, it just seems needlessly fiddly and not funny enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I know that's a very broad criticism and it's going to be entirely subjective um but there is a bit on the british comedy guide website which goes into a bit more detail says that graham white was the director of an engineering company when he wrote the gaffer and it fucking feels like it's the only thing we've managed to establish really is that fred moffat 
the gaffer uh-huh. is conniving. Right, we get that. That comes yeah. across really, really well. But that's it. There's nothing else really happening. And if there is, if there's something really integral to the plot happening, I can't tell because of Maynard's mumbling. Yep. The package is so bland and awash with industry speak. It is effectively all of the supporting characters feeding the gaffer plot lines Yeah. that he then fails to respond to. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, you know. importantly. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> The shop steward is thinking of organising a strike. The gaffer's worried about like business coming in. His staff are like threatening to basically go to a competitors. They kind of work out between them. I don't understand the mechanics of this, but this is me, not the program. They mm. kind of work out that he can make a strike work for him. I don't understand mm-hmm. how, but that's fine. You know, it's some maybe not an insurance scam or something along those lines. Yeah, if you guys go on strike, da da da, da we can do that. It'll work out okay for all of us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this has taken the best part of a quarter of an hour to set this up. And I'm like, mate, anything else is to be done in just in five minutes. There'd be more slapstick, more gags, someone falling over onto a hammer. Yeah. I don't know. It's um, just drawn out. Oh. Again, it's probably worth pointing out that Graham White, the creator of this, the writer, he was so invested in the character that he wrote a follow-up novel called The Gaffer's Gorillas, which is about, like, it's set, uh, th- this novel was published in 2014. And set what? in 2014, can you imagine right. the amount of fan fiction which has been penned in the intervening 31 years bridging that gap? Graham can. That's why his long-awaited spin-off here is over 500 pages long. I haven't read it. I'm what? not going to. Uh- <laughs> what, though? Seriously. There's absolutely no need for that Seriously. whatsoever. Yeah. It's not available anywhere. It's on websites. It's not available. So I'm imagining it was independently published I'm, I'm, I'm actually a gog. There we go. You've blown me away. When we when we do our book review series, that'll be yep. show one. <laughs> uh huh. If you th- if you think I'm reading 500 pages of that slurry, you've got another thing coming. I'd no, rather put my head I'm in gonna, the blender. I'm gonna get nah. pod producer Ken to make you an audio book of it. <laughs> it this rumbles on. I've got. I'll tell you now. I'll tell you now. I hold my hands up, listener. I've got not a lot more to say about this. My only other, my only other real point in this is there are several scenes. Most of all, the final scene of the program where the cast seemed to be like falling about laughing at the hilarity that was in tune on set. Yeah. Now, generally speaking, particularly in comedy, um, if a cast turn around and go, "Oh, we had a fantastic time on set," that means the end product isn't going to be great. You know, it, yeah. you really need precision, not just going on there and da-da-da-da-da. But yeah, I'm watching this, and I have no idea why they're all fucking enjoying themselves so much. I'd be livid. So there we go. A, a half-hour sitcom about a strike. <laughs> right. There we have it. So with all that in mind, mm. how many pegs would you pin along the go-faster stripe of Fred Moffat's car? All my pegs have gone on strike. None. <laughs> Again! This, <laughs> this is a skid mark on the knickers of sitcom. Oh, dear God. Yes, again. <laughs> yes, again. Oh, it pains God. me. It dear pains God. me. Yes. And while we're on that subject, how many pegs would you take out of a tool bag and stick on the gaffer's hat? Um, There is potential here, and I can see why Yorkshire Television would pick this up. But the script needs polishing before it gets anywhere near a camera, and the cast and director needs to stop saying yes to the only people who turn up for the auditions three out of nine. 
Hush it. <laughs> but more importantly than that, of course, mm-hmm. how many steps would it take you to get the fuck away from Moffat Engineering and your look the mountain? Quickest tits, one. The gaffer stars Billsbury Maynard, of course, who rocked up in the second ever episode of Those Wonderful TV Times with... I wonder why I woke up with a cramp. Well, that's a relief that something's gone smoothly. Yep, absolutely. And yourself? Same, one. Oh. The gaffer stars Ronington Brody, who was in the driving lessons episode of Winning Widows with Peggy Mount. I feel like a game of rounders. Brilliant. Right. Competition question. I've hardly got the energy for this. <laughs> I have hardly got the energy for this. Anyway, here is your second competition question. As Blackout correctly pointed out earlier, the title sequence for this episode features the gaffer's car and its filthy just like his office. Which swear word is written on the boot in Muck? For all of our fans in America, that's trunk. Yeah. Which 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 swear word is written on the boot in trunk? Yeah. <laughs> right. There we are. Right. While I go and kick my last few weeble action figures out of the studio window, out of pure temper, having watched the gaffer, Blackout's got your socials. Yes, thanks once again for being with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are PeggyMountPod on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. Five-star ratings are always very welcome on Spotify and iTunes, wherever you listen to us. Review as well if you can. Don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes for this and for all of our other episodes. It's as simple as that. It and really he- is. And heroin. Stay away from heroin. Seriously. Of course. Well, just say no. Yeah. No. I mean, no. No. But just say yes to tuning into us next week for the next episode of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. Until then, keep pegging! The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from iCall Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com.